Welcome to the Grace Long Beach Podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is John 16, 4 through 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest, and the rest of us may be seated. Well, good to be with you uh, this morning. My name is Steve Porter, and uh, my wife Alicia and I have been here at Grace uh, for a couple decades now. It's hard to believe that. I was thinking that when I came to Grace, um, Jeff Giles was uh, still just starting college, I think. And uh, now, last time I saw Jeff, it looks like college was a long ways away for him. But <laughs> I wasn't here so long ago that I uh, changed Jeff's uh, diapers in the nursery, but I won't ask for a show of hands as to how many uh, had that uh, distinct privilege. Um, I don't even think Jeff's here, and I... There, oh, there, thank. Oh, good. Okay, good. I was looking for you because I wanted to really direct. Um, so I uh, teach at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology, and so I spend a good chunk of my week uh, talking to pastors and ministry leaders and people who are training uh, to go into church ministry. And oftentimes we, we talk about what's wrong with the church, the problems in the church today, uh, what the church needs. And I get paid uh, the not very big bucks um, to, to try to diagnose what's wrong with the church and try to provide solutions. And oftentimes all of that uh, comes across as kind of a negative evaluation of the church. And yet oftentimes when I, when I sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ. When I when I'm with the people of God, either in this church or other churches I have the opportunity to visit, the people I meet don't fit 
They don't match that negative description. I, I had that opportunity last week here at this church. Uh, we had these second hour family circles where we sat together, and I sat with some of you, uh, a group of people that I didn't know very well that I haven't uh, spent much time with. And as we went around the circle and talked about what we value about this church, where we'd like to see this particular church a year from now, I I didn't hear a lot of those negative critiques that I often find myself giving in classes. What I heard and what I saw were people who were hungry and thirsty for God, people who who want to be grounded in Scripture, people who want to be relevant to our culture, to reach out beyond these walls with the salt and light of Jesus. And, And it was encouraging to be amongst you all. And it reminded me of something, right? No doubt there are problems in the church universal, and no doubt we have had and we still do have our problems here at our church. But God is still at work, oftentimes in spite of ourselves. He is still at work. He, 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 he takes a little bit of a sermon here, a little bit of a Bible study there, an answer to prayer, an encouragement from a friend, and he slowly but surely builds us up in him, that, that he's doing something in our midst. I think of that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. That, that Aslan is on the move, that he's causing the growth, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, that he's the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews says. So uh, in many respects, folks, I, I really think we don't have to worry about our church. Uh, God is at work. Uh, He wants to work with us, but oftentimes he'll work in spite of us. But whatever we do, he is still at work. And let me just pray before I move. That's not my sermon, by the way. That was just my introduction. But let me pray as I move on to my sermon. So, Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you, Lord, that I can uh, spend some time uh, uh, with these folks today, with with your children, uh, that they are my brothers and sisters. And that's not just um, nice-sounding language. But these are, these are people uh, that, that we do life with. So thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. So um, Anne Lamott uh, is an unlikely convert to Christianity. In her best-selling book, Traveling Mercies, she tells the story of her coming to Christ. Uh, Lamott was born in a, in a very liberal, progressive atheistic home where you could believe anything you wanted except Christianity. Christianity in her home was was seen as uh, unenlightened, backwards, closed-minded, the wrong side of the political spectrum. And yet, as Anne tells her story, life isn't going very well for her as a young, struggling Author. She's published a couple books, but they're not selling well. She's dealing with alcoholism, drug addiction, bulimia. She lives in a small little apartment on a houseboat on San Francisco Bay. 
And she's struggling in her life and struggling to try to make sense of her life. And she, she tells in this book how she walks to a flea market every Sunday. And there's this old rundown church that leaves their doors open. And she can hear the music coming out of the church. And the music is compelling to her. And she finds herself on Sunday mornings lingering outside the doors of this church just to listen to the music. And there's something about the music that begins to soften her and speak to her. And she lingers closer to the doors, but she always leaves before the sermon starts. The sermon repulses her. Anne goes on to tell about how she gets pregnant with a child she had no intention of keeping with a man she had no intention of staying in relationship with. And she ends up deciding to terminate the child's life. And let me read a bit from her story of her life. She says, I didn't go to the flea market the week of my abortion. I stayed home and smoked dope and got drunk and tried to write a little. On the seventh night, though very drunk and just about to take a sleeping pill, I discovered that I was bleeding heavily. It did not stop over the next hour, and I thought I should call a doctor. But I was so disgusted that I'd gotten so drunk one week after an abortion that I just couldn't wake someone up and ask for help. Several hours later, the blood stopped flowing, and I got in bed, shaky and sad and too wild to have another drink, or take a sleeping pill. I had a cigarette and turned off the light. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. And I just assumed it was my father whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love. And I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because that's not what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning, he was gone. This experience spooked me badly, but I thought it was just an apparition born of fear and self-loathing and booze and loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. So she says, I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my houseboat door when I entered or left. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time, I stayed for the sermon, which I just thought was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if, was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping 
and joyful at the same time. I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. I began to cry, and I left before the benediction. And I raced home and felt the little cat running along at my heels. I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat. And I stood there a minute. And then I hung my head and said, forget it. I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion, Lamott says. I love that picture of conversion. Uh, I read it to some of my classes. I think I like it for two reasons. One, it is a, a beautiful illustration of the Christian doctrine of conversion. I actually cleaned Lamott's language up a little bit. Uh, when she says, forget it, I quit, she said a different word at the start there. <laughs> F it, I quit. See, that's repentance. That's a turning from... I can't do it anymore. I can't make it on my own. I can't be my own God. I need help. That's repentance. And then you can come in. That's faith. It's a turning from and a turning to the person of Jesus. And I love that picture of conversion. But the other reason why I love that story is because of the realism with which Lamott understands Jesus. He, he's, he's hunkered down on his haunches He's following her with patience and love like that stray cat that you lit in and it stays forever. Now, I don't like cats that much, but perhaps um, you, you know of this poem entitled The Hound of Heaven. It depicts Jesus as this hound that is relentlessly, lovingly pursuing us. We like to use the passage of Scripture, uh, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him or her, and I will sup with them. Um, that, that, that is a powerful salvation verse, but actually the context really tells us it's a sanctification verse. Because the church that Jesus is knocking on the door of is the church of Laodicea. These folks are Christians, according to the context in Revelation 3. They're lukewarm Christians. And Jesus is saying, I stand at the door of your heart, and I'm, I want to come in and nourish you. But he doesn't kick the door down. So even as we come to Christ and grow in Christ, Jesus continues to pursue us. And yet that realism of God can be very difficult because, I don't know if you've noticed, but he's invisible. We've never seen him. Isn't that interesting to think about? That the most significant relationship in your life is with a person you've never seen? That, yes, Jesus is resurrected, and he's embodied, but we do not have sense, perceptual access to Jesus. We can't see him. We, we can't touch him. We can't smell him. We can't taste him. No doubt you've sensed God's presence from time to time. No doubt you've experienced God through other people or through the means of grace, but we do not come into physical contact with him. My all, all Madonna joke, jokes aside, my title today is uh, Living in a Material World. 
with an immaterial God. If you don't know the reference to Madonna, you didn't listen to music in the 80s, but, um, or at least a certain kind of music. Uh, See, Paul puts it this way, knowing that we, that we are, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. Later he says that someday we will see face to face, but now we look through a dimly lit mirror. We, we live in this in-between time where, where God's presence is not fully perceptible to us. Um, Thomas Good old Thomas, he said he wouldn't believe unless he saw the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus comes up to him and, and lets Thomas put his fingers in his scars. And Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet come to believe. You see, we live on the other side of that. We don't see Jesus in that sort of way. Some 35 years later, The Apostle Peter says to his church this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you trust him. And the question arises as to how we can come to love and trust someone whom we don't see. And this is where our materiality, our materiality and God's immateriality can become problematic in our ongoing Christian lives. I'd like to propose that without a way of understanding God's presence, the immateriality or invisibility of God can become a barrier in developing our ongoing communion with God. Now, the problem is not on God's side. It's not as if somehow he has trouble dealing with our material embodied existence. Right? The, the, the Lord of all is the Lord of the material space-time world. He made it. He has no trouble interacting with it. So the problem with materiality isn't on God's side. The problem is on our side. And the problem with living in a material world with an immaterial God is that most of us are addicted to materiality. Now, I'm not here talking about materialism. That's a problem, I imagine. But I'm just talking about how easy it is to be focused on what we can see. That so much of our life is just focused in on all of the things that are vying for our attention. And this immaterial, this invisible one, this lover of our souls, this, this, this one who's knocking at the door of our hearts, can be so easy to forget about, so easy to neglect. We walk by faith and not by sight, but I'm afraid for many of us, I know for myself, often out of sight is truly out of mind. We cannot set our minds on Christ if he is merely an occasional fleeting thought. How do we make his immaterial reality more of a pressing reality in our lives. I had a student in my office a while back, and um, he mentioned this book. I don't know if you can see the title. Uh, 
It's called The Seeming Unreality of the Spiritual Life. I'd never heard of the book, and I went to Biola's library, and they happened to have it, and I checked it out, and I still have it. Uh, but in this book, by, it was written in 1908 by a guy named Henry Churchill King, a pastor, and, and he says this. He says, though by hypothesis God is the one realist of all facts and the most loving of all beings, he does not seem to be thrust upon us as such at all. After all is said, is this not the real and great difficulty for the Christian view and for the establishment of real conviction and of joyful spiritual living? Does not much depend upon meeting effectively this constant underlying difficulty of the seeming unreality of the spiritual life? See, it seems to me we need a, we need a conceptualization. We need a way of understanding the invisible reality of life with God. If you have your Bibles or if you have something by which you can access a Bible, uh, turn to the passage that Ramona read. I'll actually put it up here on the screen too, but Ramona read from us, uh, to us from John 16, starting in the second half of verse 4. Uh, this is what uh, commentators call uh, Jesus's farewell discourse. He's leaving the disciples. He's going to the cross. He's giving them some final instructions. He's actually transitioning them from a life with him where they could see him to a life with him where they would no longer be with him physically, but he would still be present to them in a different kind of way. And he talks about how he is going to send his spirit who will be with them always. So at the latter half of verse 4, he says, I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. He's leaving them. And, and he says importantly here in verse 7, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I go, I will send the helper the spirit, the paraclete to you, the one who will come alongside. Now, it's interesting to think about why, why is it to their advantage that Jesus, the embodied person of God, is going to leave? I mean, wouldn't it be better to have the embodied Jesus with us? And Jesus says, no, it's actually better for his disciples, for his children, if he leaves and he sends the spirit. Now, there's lots to say about why this would be better. Um, I mean, one thing to think about is, is actually, if you think about God's dealings with the people of Israel, you think about his dealings uh, even with his own disciples while he was on earth, things don't usually go very well when God shows up in some sort of uh, manifestation. I mean, we learn in Genesis 3 that, that the Lord God came to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, and yet that didn't go very well. Uh, the Israelites, uh, they have this pillar of fire by day and this, or a pillar of cloud by day and this fire by night. Uh, they have manna coming down from heaven and yet they grumble and they, they get, they get, uh, they stray from God. God's presence is manifest, uh, in the Ten Commandments and yet the people walk away. God becomes incarnate in human form on earth. And once he opens his mouth and begins his public ministry, it only took three years before we killed him. When God shows up in manifest form, people often recoil. And so it looks like that part of why it's better 
is because God has a different strategy with the Holy Spirit. His strategy is not to force himself on his. His strategy is to give us room to respond to him. He's present, but he doesn't thrust himself upon us. But the other reason why it looks like it might be better if Jesus sends the Holy Spirit is because when Jesus was embodied on earth, he was physically located at one time, one place at a time. When Jesus was with Peter, James, and John, he wasn't with Andrew, Andrew and Nathaniel. But the Spirit of God, the immaterial Spirit of God, is multiply realizable. The Spirit of God can be in multiple places at the same time, and the Spirit of God can be in as many places as the Spirit desires at the same time. And so the Spirit of God can be with us here while he's with the church across the street and churches all over this world. But Jesus goes on later in this passage to talk about another aspect of the Spirit's work. It's a very interesting passage, John 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus has been talking to disciples for a while, and he says, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Have you ever been in that situation where someone's talking to you and you just can't bear anymore? It's like, I I, I just can't take anymore. You need to stop. And and Jesus is aware, maybe you're at that point right now with me, Um, Jesus is aware that his disciples can't take anymore. They can't bear it psychologically. He has a lot more he wants to get across, a lot more information about who he is, about the Father, about how the Spirit was going to work in their lives, but they can't bear it. They can't bear it. So what does he say? When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. We could call this the declaratory ministry of the Holy Spirit. They they can't bear anymore, but he's going to send his spirit to be with them. And he says the spirit will remain with you always. And the spirit will know how much you can bear. And he'll take what Jesus had. What did Jesus had? Jesus understood all of what it was to live life with his father. He understood all of what it was to be the son, to be a child of his father. And and the spirit is going to take what Jesus had and declare it to us as we can bear it. Paul goes on to tell us that the spirit's primary meaning is Abba, Father. Paul says that the spirit of the Son cries out in our hearts that God is our Father. Elsewhere, he says in in Romans 8 that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. This, This Spirit that Jesus sends that's with us always is crying out that we are the beloved children of Abba Father, that we're taken care of, that he loves us, That no matter what we're going through, he's with us. I don't think we should be surprised that God's method of transformation is what we call spirit and word. That's really what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about sending his spirit and that spirit is going to bring his word, his truth. Later in John 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. 
The Spirit's work in our life is going to come through Spirit and Word. The reason why I say we shouldn't be surprised by that is because another way to think about Spirit is presence. That's really what it is. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God with us. And Word is really meaning. Presence and meaning. Have you ever thought about presence and meaning? Uh, I mean, if, if, if you've ever had someone be physically present but, present, but you don't know what they're thinking, you don't know what their meaning is, it can be rather frustrating. Someone could come in the room right now and stand right here and they would be present, but unless we knew what their meaning was, we, would, we might find it a little disturbing. Of course, sometimes you can have meaning without presence. Maybe you find a, a letter from someone who's no longer in your life and you're, you're reading this letter and it has deep meaning, but the person isn't in your life anymore. You have meaning, but not presence. And meaning without presence can leave us lonely. But presence, personal presence and, and meaning together can be quite impacting, quite powerful. Uh, I remember one time I was uh, pushing my son on, on, a, on the swing in our backyard. And he was about, about five years old, if I remember right. And I always enjoyed uh, pushing my kids on the swing because I could push with my right hand and look at my cell phone with my left hand. And, and it was multitasking. And, um, and I was doing that, and I was pushing Luke in the swing, and he, he was just learning to tell time. He was about five. And, and he said, Dad, what time is it? And I said, yeah, it's 1.30. And, and he said, Dad, will it ever be this time again? And I said, yeah, son, and in 12 hours it'll be 1.30 a.m., and then 12 hours from that it'll be 1.30 p.m. And he said, no, Dad, will it ever be this particular time again? And my phone kind of slipped into my pocket because, you know, he's now talking about the nature of time, and this is kind of interesting to me. So I, I, I said, I said, I said, Luke, do you mean, will it ever be this particular moment again? He said, yeah, Dad, you know, November, whatever, 1.30. I said, no, son, this moment right now is gone. And this moment right now, this moment we have right now, you know, this one, it's gone. And this moment, this one right here, we'll never have this moment again. And as I was kind of joking with Luke, I think both of us began to realize that, yeah, this time is going. And we became present in the moment. And as I was pushing him on the swing, I said, Luke, you know what that makes me want to do? That makes me want to take advantage of each and every moment we have. And as he came back in the swing, I said, you know what that makes me want to do right now? He said, what, Dad? And he came back and I just got right in his ear and I said, it makes me want to say, I love you. You see, that was presence and meaning. My, my meaning went down into my son's little soul. And because he's made for his parents' presence and meaning, that meaning just went into his soul and it, and it was a little mini explosion of love. See, presence and meaning is very powerful. We experience it all the time. But what God tells us is he has a presence and meaning, spirit and word that we were made for unlike any other relationship. And that presence of the Spirit and that meaning of His truth that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that He loves us and sees us truly, that meaning is with us always. He's crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. But here's the problem. We're addicted to materiality. 
We spend a lot of our times focused on what we can see. And so do we pay attention to this immaterial presence and meaning in our lives because it's transformational. This is why we talk sometimes about spiritual disciplines, or if you don't like that language, we could call them uh, 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 Christian practices or devotional exercises, whatever you want to call them. Here's one way of thinking about them. Spiritual disciplines are embodied space-time, material ways to pay attention to the immaterial reality of God. There are ways to be present with the one who's already present to us. There's this great little uh, phrase in Jude 21, verse 21 of Jude, that says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's That's what spiritual disciplines are. They're ways to keep ourselves with the God who loves us. Or Jesus says in John 15, abide in my love, remain in my love. It's not make him love us. It's not uh, do good things so that he will love us. It's he already loves us. He's there. But we need to pay attention to that love. Another way of putting the exact same point is to say spiritual disciplines are embodied practices in a physical world whereby we present ourselves to the immaterial reality of the spirit, the word, the presence and meaning of Christ. Uh, Some years ago, I was reading a book. I don't know if you can read that. It's pretty small, but uh, I don't even remember what the book was, but it had this quote by W.H. Auden in the book. And um, I can't read that. Oh, here it is on my paper here. I can't read it up there. Uh, Auden says this, choice of attention to pay attention to this and ignore that is to the inner life what choice of action is to the outer. In both cases, a man is responsible for his choice and must accept the consequences. Quoting Ortega y Gasset, he said, uh, tell me to what you pay attention and I'll tell you who you are. We might want to say, tell me to whom you pay attention and I'll tell you who you are. You see, uh, our practices of prayer, our practices of scripture reading are ways that we pay attention to God. Coming to church is a way that we pay attention. We say, God, I believe in your reality and availability enough to drive my car to this building and sit down with these people and say, here I am, Lord. I want to pay attention to you. I want to pay attention to your presence, to your meaning. Uh, Paul puts it this way. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For your old life is over, you've died, and your new life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. When we, when we pray, we're at some level saying, Lord, I, I want to focus my mind on your reality. When, when, we, when we give money to the church, we're saying, Lord, I, I want to focus my attention on you and, and put money in this offering basket because I must believe that you're real and you're at work in your people. You're at work in this church. When we open the Bible, we're saying, God, I need you. I'm not my own God. And these practices habituate over time our attention to God. 
to his presence, to his meaning. They're really practices or disciplines of surrender. Surrender. <clears throat> I um, started meeting with a, uh, a woman up in Pasadena. She uh, works on the pastoral staff of a church, and she's a spiritual director. She's a, a Christian mentor, and, and this is part of her ministry. And I drive up once a month to meet with this woman all the way up to Pasadena. I have no other reason to go to Pasadena. It's a ridiculous drive. Every, every time I go, I hate it. Because all she does is pray for me and encourage me, and God uses her to speak important things into my life. But really, to drive up there is a bit of an insult. Because I actually have to admit that, God, I need you so much, and I'm so bad at paying attention to you, that I have to drive all the way to Pasadena to sit down with someone who reminds me that you're real and that you're available. I might as well just stick a little surrender flag out of my car as I make that drive. Because the whole drive is a practice of surrender. Surrender. In some way, I'm saying uh, with, with Anne Lamott, forget it. I quit. You can come in. So, folks, what are your practices of surrender? What are the ways that you organize your day, your week, to focus your attention on the, the loving, relentless, immaterial pursuit of the Spirit and His meaning?